Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. The U.S. Department of Interior is in the process of renaming more than 600 places on federal land because the original names are derogatory. That doesn't change the hundreds of other names of towns, landmarks, and businesses that continue with names now considered offensive by Native Americans. But momentum is building and states and other institutions are moving in the right direction. We'll discuss this pivotal moment in ridding the landscape of derogatory names right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. President Biden mentioned tribal communities during a State of the Union speech Tuesday night when talking about providing high-speed internet for every American. While that was the only direct reference to tribes, many issues the president addressed are priorities for Native communities, from COVID-19 recovery, Veterans Affairs, job creation, to strengthening the Violence Against Women Act. The Native American congressional delegation had mixed reactions to the speech. Democratic Congresswoman Sharice David said she's ready to work on a bipartisan level in her statement following the address. Republican Congressman Tom Cole and Mark Wayne Mullen were more critical. Mullen in a statement said President Biden is taking the country in the wrong direction. More potential graves have been found at the site of a former residential school in Canada this time in Alberta. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, a Northern First Nation says 169 possible graves were found. In addition to the ground-penetrating radar, a specialized drone was used to find the evidence of the graves at what was once a mission site at Gruard. The project was led by the Archaeology Department of the University of Alberta. The initial report shows that investigators discovered 129 probable graves and 40 possible graves over a one-acre site. Most of the graves were in the community cemetery. The former St. Bernard Mission School was run by the Catholic Church from 1894 to 1961. Testimony before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission suggested abuse and manual labor. Chief Sidney Halcrow is the chief of the Capuino First Nation. The grief we felt when discovering our stolen children has opened fresh wounds. We remember the deservation of our people felt when our children were forcibly removed from their families, communities, to be placed in Indian residential schools. Halcrow said only one acre of the site was investigated. He says the First Nation now is a long journey ahead to find answers to what happened to the children who never made it home from the St. Bernard Mission School. He said once that happens, the community can begin to heal. Halcrow also thanked the elders and survivors who told stories about what happened at the school. Truths, he said, that were not believed for many, many years. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Some student fans hurled racist remarks and sounds at players from Alaska's only reservation during a February 5th high school basketball game. That's according to an investigation. Eric Stone reports from Ketchikan. The unnamed Ketchikan student's behavior has, quote, been handled according to the district's student disciplinary policy, according to the district. No further details were provided. The statement makes no mention of any action against employees. The school district launched its investigation after photos circulated of Ketchikan High School pep club members dressed in cowboy hats, plaid shirts, and other western wear at a basketball game against Metlakatla High School. Eyewitnesses also reported they heard stereotypical war cries from the Ketchikan crowd. Pep club members denied making racist remarks and sounds. 
The incident sparked an outcry around the state. Tribal leaders and community members said they took the students' country dress as a Cowboys and Indians theme, playing on atrocities committed against indigenous people. The district's statement says pep club students did not intend to cause harm with the country theme night, but the school district says the effect of the theme was predictable and should have been prevented. The district offered an apology to Metlakatla students, coaches, parents, and the community as a whole, along with the investigation's findings. The school district also apologized to Native communities around the state. The school district said it would institute a new plan for selecting future pep club themes, conduct a racial equity audit of district policies, and provide training, among other things. The superintendent of Metlakatla's school district said he was pleased the process was moving forward. For National Native News, I'm Eric Stone in Ketchikan. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications for the upcoming school year are now accepted at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Almost 700 landmarks and waterways on federal land are named a term now considered a pejorative for Native women. The Department of Interior intends to rename all of them by the end of this year. While individual states and other entities have worked to ban the term, Interior's efforts is the swiftest and largest effort so far to erase it from maps, signs, and trail markers forever. The federal government's effort is also giving momentum for new efforts to strip the name from places other than federal landmarks. California, for example, is considering a statewide ban of the term. In all cases, the effort is renewed and uh, has renewed a debate over whether the term is really offensive or whether the term is simply a word for woman. Be advised, you may hear the term during this show, so sensitive listeners should take note. And, of course, we like to hear from you, our listening audience. Is it long time, uh, is it a long past, is it long past time uh, to get rid of this term in our landscape? Join our discussion by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to bring in our first guest. Joining in from Seattle, Washington is Maria Givens. She is a co-founder and partner of Tahoma Peak Solutions, a Native woman-owned consulting company focused on strategic communication and food sovereignty. Welcome to Native America Calling, Maria. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, thanks for joining. So, um, you know, I didn't mention this word just yet, but I will uh, say it maybe just once. Um, the word is squaw. 
Um, what do you feel like when you hear this word, the S word? How are you affected by seeing this word on signs around you, Maria? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even just hearing it, I kind of flinch a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I So I grew up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and Lake Coeur d'Alene, the center of our universe. Um, as the indigenous people of that area, there is a bay called with the S word, S word Bay. And so even growing up, I would hear, um, you know, fellow students, I'd ask, oh, what part of town do you live in? They'd say where they live. And even just saying something as simple as, oh, yeah, I live in this area was a pejorative, a derogatory term towards me as a Native woman, or at the time, a Native girl. So, um, yeah, definitely not a fan. <laughs> I think that there's been a lot of good, uh, I really am excited about what Secretary Holland has done. And then even the ski resort in Lake Tahoe has been making efforts to change their name, too. So, uh, yeah, yeah. All right. So um, in your work, how long have you been focusing on name changes? How long have you been working on uh, name changes? Yeah, so on name changes specifically, I've been working on that since about 2016. I worked at the National Congress of American Indians, where I handled the cultural protections portfolio. And so that had everything from uh, protecting sacred places and um, like burial grounds or national monuments, all the way to mascots uh, and changing the names of derogatory mascots, um, but also we'd get a lot of calls from folks just in neighborhoods saying, hey, I want to change the name of this, you know, street in my neighborhood or um, something of that sort. And so I've been working on this uh, since 2016, which almost feels like a different uh, era from where we are now. Yeah, I mean, um, for maybe listeners who might be new to this subject here of name changes and mascots, uh, kind of go through this era. Like, what what has been happening uh, lately? What what is this momentum to change these uh, names and uh, mascots? Yeah, so things have been moving so quickly in the last couple of years. I mean. In 2016, when I started this work, uh, the Washington team was still called the Redskins. Um, that's changed. We uh, had the Trump administration in the middle of all of that. Um, I remember in the early days of the Trump administration, uh, the president wanted to change the name of Denali back to Mount McKinley, even though everyone in Alaska was on board with it, all the senators. Uh, the members of Congress, the tribes, really wanted to keep the name Denali because it's the Athabascan word for mountain. And uh, the president at the time wanted to change it back to Mount McKinley. Um, and as everybody knows, the summer of 2020, things changed in the racial justice movement uh, like crazy. And now we have a Secretary of Interior who is a Native woman who is making huge strides to to change the names of all of these places uh, on federal lands. So, um, you know, a lot has changed in the last six years. So I'm really glad to see it, too. 
Yeah. And uh, you just mentioned uh, Denali and, um, you know, that that's just one out of many places that have gotten a name change Um, in your area. uh, Have you seen uh, a name change, whether it's a name of a mountain, a canyon, a town, a street? Have you seen it change to something that is a little less um, offensive or racist in the last couple of years? You can join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848 that's also 1-800-99-NATIVE we're also on twitter at 1-800-99-NATIVE we're also on instagram instagram at uh, native america calling so you can join our conversation there um but we'd also love to hear you on this um live radio show so uh let's go back to uh maria um maria um you know, there's there's argument from from folks who want to keep some of these derogatory names. Um, what what is uh, what is kind of uh, the main argument you hear from folks who want to keep some of these names? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I feel like at the core of all of this is identity. Um, when I was working on mascot issues, people who supported the Washington football team really didn't want to be called racist by supporting their local football team. Um, They wanted to be seen as a football fan, not as a racist football fan. And so really trying to unpack that identity, um, it's, it can get so loaded because it's, we try to self-protect our identities um, in any way possible. And so I think the pushback has been um, trying to, the difficulty is trying to separate that identity of, you know, I am a person who lives in a racist town name, a town named something racist versus I am a racist person. So trying to finesse that line has been the really tricky part of this work. Um, And, you know, I think at the end of the day, people aren't, aren't bad for, living where they live or supporting a team that they support um it's just a name that we could that we could change right Right. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about identity as we, um, you know, d- continue this discussion throughout uh, the rest of this hour. But um, so there's obviously a, a momentum to get rid of derogatory names, especially the those that are derogatory towards um, us as Native Americans. But um, there there still has to be a lot of work done. I mean, um, uh, Deb Holland's uh, mission to eradicate this word is is for federal lands, but there's still lots of other land out there. So, um, what uh, what what kind of work do you think still needs to be done to get rid of this s word from other places, Maria? Absolutely. I mean, the federal government is is huge, um, but there's so much work to be done outside of it. I'd like to see states taking um, similar stands as Secretary Holland. Um, even, you know, towns and uh, all the levels of government. Um, I think another part of this is Native mascots um, in schools, and there's just so much work to be done. And uh, I think that it really has to happen from a grassroots level because from the top-down level uh, with the federal government, 
that has been with Secretary Holland's order has has been as exhausted as it can be. All right. And who are some of the um, like the, the native groups, the advocates, the nonprofits, who are some of those that are, um, you know, doing this work to uh, help change those names and change these narratives? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I definitely, as a former NCAI staffer, uh, NCAI has been working in this space for since the 1940s. Um, so they have continued to do great work in this area. I'd also say NASPO, the Native American Tribal Historic Preservation Officers Association. Um, they do a ton of incredible work in this specific area. And um, I think we might get to this later on in the discussion, but uh, the Wilderness Society and NASPO just released a guide for renaming place names. So definitely check that out. If you um, have, as you're listening to this conversation, you're like, oh man, we really need to rename this one place. Uh, There's a step-by-step guide of saying, okay, if it's on, it's, a state-owned road, um, go through these different places, here's the contact information. They have a lot of great, great information in there. Yeah, and we do have somebody from the Wilderness Society coming up um, later in the hour um, to talk about some of these uh, guidelines. Um, I think he described it as like a how-to, you know, guidelines for changing a, a problematic name for a street, a town, you know, a landmark, stuff like that. So um, we're going to go to a break right now. And after that, we're going to continue our discussion on changing uh, place names. Join our conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Native mothers are more than twice as likely as their white counterparts to die from pregnancy-related complications. The statistics are even worse for urban Native populations. We'll find out the threats Native mothers face and what's being done to solve them on the next Native America Calling. You're attuned to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Are you offended by the term sometimes used for Native women? Have people used that term to refer to you? We're talking about the momentum to rid place names of derogatory names. Are there places near you that have offensive names? Have you seen them change over time? Join our discussion now. We are at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And just before the break, we were talking with Maria Givens, co-founder and partner of uh, Tahoma Peak Solutions, about uh, some of this momentum, um, some of this technical momentum. And she mentioned 
mentioned a guideline for changing place names. And I want to bring in another guest at this moment. Uh, joining us from Bozeman, Montana is Paul Spittler. He's the Senior Legislative Policy Manager for the Wild, the Wilderness Society. Welcome to Native America, Paul, uh, Colleen Paul. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. Thank you for joining us. So um, you, along with a bunch of other partners from uh, different groups, put together this guidelines, this how-to guidelines for changing problematic place names. Uh, what kind of work went into creating this, uh, this guideline? Yeah. Well, so we, um, we had been researching the number of offensive place names across the country and found to our shock and horror that there's literally thousands of these names. The racial slur that was uh, that is being addressed by Secretary Holland's order from November is just um, just one of the many. It's unfortunately the most prominent, but um, it's not the only one. There's many other places that are named uh, with racial slurs, with um, named after people who committed atrocities against Native Americans, uh, named after Confederate leaders, etc. And we know that there's communities across the country, including many um, tribes who are um, concerned in working to address these names. And uh, there have been many successful efforts to change names um, of places that have racist or offensive names. Um, but there's still many more of these offensive names out there. And it turns out that there's a really obscure federal board within the Department of the Interior that has the huge responsibility of um, naming and renaming all geographic features in the United States. So they're not responsible for things like cities or towns or highways but they are responsible for mountains, rivers, lakes, valleys, reservoirs, et cetera. And this board has a process whereby anyone can propose to rename a geographic feature, and um, including renaming a feature that has a racist or offensive name or uses a racial slur, for example. And um, like I said, there have been many successful efforts to rename features, but many more, um, there's much more work to be done. So we set out to write a guide to guide people on um, how to navigate this process. And um, there's really no such guide in existence now, or at least until this week, there wasn't. Um, and it's really, you know, intended to help those communities and individuals and tribal leaders across the country who are interested in um, addressing these some of these racist place names near them and um, you know return names to the landscape that honor the uh, the people that live there and have lived there for uh, m millennia okay all right. And, um, you know, we've we've mentioned a couple of um, successes, uh, groups and tribes changing um, names of problematic uh, place names like uh, Denali and Devil's Tower was changed um, a couple of years ago and um, uh, Piestawa Peak over in Arizona. Um, 
why you know these are these are success stories and and um but uh i want to hear about um uh, how it can be really difficult where maybe a group or a family or maybe even a tribe would just like forget about it or just think it's way too hard i mean what what are some of the complicated really complicated uh processes of of changing a place name yeah great question so um the process is fairly straightforward, but it is certainly not um, uh, simple or fast. And um, basically, it starts with anyone just writing a simple proposal to this federal board, proposing a new name for a geographic feature. Um, the board will then do a couple things. They'll take that proposal. They'll First, they'll send it out to all federally recognized tribes for, for comment. Then they'll send it to the county commission where the geographic feature is located. Um, they'll send it to the state naming authority uh, for comment as well. And they'll send it to the land management agency as well. And where things can tend to get um, ground down is at the local level and at the state level. So many of the places where these geographic features are located are in very conservative parts of the country where there's just resistance to um, changing names. Um, for example, here in Montana, we, um, the Wilderness Society and the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes and others submitted a proposal to rename a uh, geographic feature, a mountain that's currently named for Jefferson Davis, the former head of the Confederacy, and we proposed for that feature to restore the name of a um, uh, tribal um, ch uh, chief of the um, Salish tribe. And the county commission there um, responded um, with an all caps, hell no, leave us alone. <laughs> so, um, you know, this local resistance can be difficult. Um, you know, the other place where things can, can grind down sometimes is at the state level. The, the federal board really relies on recommendations by the state naming authorities uh, for them to take action on name change proposals. And um, many of the states don't have an official board, and there's no kind of public process for citizens to engage. It's just kind of some individual in some department who has this as part of their responsibilities, and they're often not accessible by phone or email. There's no public process or you know ability for public comment. They just kind of write their recommendations based on we don't know what. So um, you know it's really at these kind of state and local levels where things can grind down. Um, but like I said, many people have navigated this process successfully, and I think the federal board is also realizing that, um, you know, there's so much interest in this topic that, um, you know, they're going to have to start looking more seriously at a lot of these name change proposals, and that's really what the secretary has has um, directed with her the orders that she put out last November. Okay. And uh, the secretary also has um, a, a task force uh, who are going to be you know, responsible for helping uh, change these hundreds of, of names with the S word. Um, do you know who some of these members are? 
or where they come from? Yeah, so the secretary uh, did two orders last November. The first is, um, as you mentioned, addressing the racial slur targeting Native American women. And the task force there is really just kind of federal employees from various departments who will work through this process internally. The other order that the secretary issued creates a citizen advisory committee to address other derogatory place names. And um, those can include the other racial slurs that, that weren't addressed by her order, uh, Confederate leaders, et cetera. And um, that task force will be made up of um, members of the public. And the application period just closed uh, last week. And so now we're eagerly awaiting the establishment of that task force. All right. Cool. Thanks. Um, and where could folks find this, um, this uh, you know, book of guidelines that um, you guys came up with? Yeah, we have it on our website. Um, if you go to wilderness.org slash place names, um, you can download the guide. It's free. It's easy to use. And it should be accessible to everyone. All right. Thank you so much for that. Um, let's go to a caller. We have Melvin in Santee, Nebraska, listening on KZYK. Hey, Mel Melvin. Good morning. Um, this is a great subject that needs to be dealt with, this S word. But I don't put all the blame on towns and communities. You know, Hollywood contributed a lot to the S-word back in the 40s and 50s when they were making all these Western movies. And that's where you heard it a lot. <laughs> and, you know, Hollywood's cleaned up a lot, but <clears throat> you still see the old movies. You know, and Bob Hope and his ransom about the S-word there was a lot of that going on back, but Hollywood contributed a lot to the S word. I think we got to remember that too. And but I will say Hollywood cleaned up quite a bit. All right, all right. Yeah, I remember hearing it like in a really old country song as well. Um, I, actually, I've heard it in a couple of uh, different older uh, country songs. So. Um, you know, it's, it's a, you know, you find it in different places, um, and you notice it, you know, after the fact when, um, you know, you're learning about it now, you're hearing different kinds of discussions about it now, and you're thinking, oh, that, that old country song or that old movie has, has that S word all through it. And, um, you just notice the change, uh, throughout time, how we're thinking about these different terms and, and what they mean to, uh, different people. Um, so I'd like to bring in another guest uh, joining us from Bozeman, Montana. We have Dr. Walter C. Fleming. He is the head of the Native American Studies Department at Montana State University. He is an enrolled member of the Kickapoo Tribe. Welcome to Native America Calling, Walter. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. 
Um, so we are talking about this S word and, um, you know, its origins, um, you know, is, is uh, kind of a mystery. And there's been debate about where this word comes from. Um, where, where do you see the origins of this word and how did it just get, you know, uh, into um, place names and songs in Hollywood? Well, I, th- I think the, the origin of the term has um, been traced to the Algonquin word. And, and there is this split between folks who say, well, it just simply means woman, and others who say, well, it specifically refers to genitalia of women. And, and it became somewhat generalized because Algonquin uh, is a fairly widely uh, spoken language family and um but i but i think more it's the the colonial experience where there were a number of of different french and and british and english um people who were moving out and and so it it, i think it became generalized just to apply to to native women uh right or wrong at that point in time it was it was uh, didn't have the negative charge that certainly it does today, and and rightly so, and so it it became just an acceptable word because because um, everybody you know was using it at that time, and and you know obviously it doesn't matter you know, what its etymology is, and it 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 could could have been uh, a native term for woman, but. It, it, it's taken a negative charge now, and and so we have to look at it from from today's perspective. Even if it may have a more uh, benign origin, it still has has taken a, a negative charge. So so that's I think the more important part of that of that discussion. It's not whether or not it has you know a specific origin that may or may not be accurate. It's it's how how we use it today. Okay. And you're in Montana, and Montana outlawed offensive place names about a dozen years ago. Was that a controversial process? Well, it, it was uh, by legislation, uh, House Bill uh, 412, and um, the, that went into effect in 2010. Uh, but it had been, you know, literally 10 years in the making. Several attempts had been um, uh, several bills had been introduced by previous in previous legislations, and those had failed. So it wasn't until 2010 when it was successful, uh, largely uh, because of the efforts from uh, uh, the senator from uh, Browning, Montana, the, the Blackfeet Reservation, Carol Juno, and uh, support from from uh, others. Uh, and so it, it it was a long process. Um, so it's been since since 2010. Okay. And why was Montana so early to adapt the name changes? Well, part of part of the the story goes back to the 1972 um to the the uh constitutional convention that Montana had and uh the convention changed the Montana constitution and added a a a line in the Constitution that recognized the the uh, contributions and importance of American Indian cultures and tribes and their histories, 
And so the state of Montana, as early as 1972, had taken a rather, you know, forward-thinking step in terms of being then the only uh, state constitution at that time to recognize the the worth of uh, their their constituent tribes. And then uh, shortly after, there was passed uh, Indian Studies Law, which required certified school personnel in K-12 schools to take six credits of Indian studies. And and that that particular era, uh, that that act failed, it was rescinded, uh, but it did set the the stage for then the passage later on of what we now know as the um, Indian Education for All, which requires uh, schools uh, to uh, infuse American Indian culture and history and, and contemporary issues into the curriculum at all levels and in all disciplines. And so teachers uh, incorporate um, not just in social sciences and in literature where, where it would be easier, but in math and in science in any other discipline. Got it. All right. We'll continue a little bit more with um, Dr. Walter C. Fleming after this break, but you can join our conversation too. We are talking about getting rid of problematic place names. Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Support by Amerind. Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. There's still time to get in on our discussion today about offensive place names. Join our discussion by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We have Dr. Walter C. Fleming with us. He is from the Native American Studies Department at Montana State University. Um, Walter, where, where do you hope we go from here, Montana outlawed offensive place names. Um, uh, Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, she um, is eradicating the word in federal lands. Um, where where do you see this momentum going from here? Well, I think it's a local issue, and it's an opportunity, I think, for, for communities to to really examine where they are. And and uh, I, I think we're, we're beginning to understand that these are great teaching opportunities. Uh, we, we, we commonly do land acknowledgments now when, when in, in the past we hadn't. But in Montana, we had 76 names, 76 names that were eventually changed. And it becomes a really good opportunity for a community to engage in not just uh, the, the process of changing a name, but rather uh, identifying what their what their community ethos is, and so it was it was really a great you know we had 76 opportunities for a community to to re you know re examine itself and and uh, look at what kind of of um, uh, you know image they have uh, and and also to to take this opportunity to recognize perhaps uh, 
people in their communities or recognize tribal entities or tribal names. And, and, and so uh, we, we ought not to look at these as, as negative aspects, but rather really good opportunities to, to hold um, and engage in, in, in some great conversations. So that's what I hope happens. And, and as communities begin to, to, I guess, accept that, that that's the reality, it, it's uh, an opportunity to really um, make a big difference. Okay. Have you seen anybody taking uh, these opportunities to rename a place after um, maybe some some contemporary person or? Well, I, I think the the greatest, uh, I, I suppose, the best analogy I can make is that we have a number of schools uh, that have have looked at the traditional names and and have uh, uh, that like locally we have. Uh, a tendency to name after literary figures, so we have Irving School and Longfellow School. But when new ones became uh, came along, uh, people in the community thought, well, those are those offer us an opportunity to do something like uh, Chief Joseph Middle School, or, or uh, in the case of uh, Billings, Montana, they named a, an elementary school after Joe Medicine Crow, who's a well-known and uh, historic contemporary um, warrior. And, and so that's uh, what, what we're hoping, and I, that's what I'm seeing, is that it becomes an alternative when somebody comes to an opportunity to, to name a, a wilderness area. Uh, it's, it's, it's now become pretty common for them to reach out and say, well, you know, what's the tribal name for this, or what's the, you know, what, what community used to call this home? And, and we're not we're, we're seeing that people are voluntarily doing that. And, and that's, I think, a great sign that people, you know, we've just risen the, the awareness uh, about about that. And it's and it benefits them because they can get some really imaginative uh, products out of extending their, you know, out of the box, as they as they say. Got it. All right. Thanks. So um, let's go to another guest we have here uh, joining us from uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, is Sarah Sunshine Manning. She's the Indian Collective Director of Communications. She is uh, Shoshone Paiute. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Sarah. Thank you, Andy. Really happy to be here. All right. Well, um, what is uh, Indian Collective's response to Holland's mission to eradicate this S word? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say, you know, this is this is really great news. And it's a reflection of, of really generations of organizing and activism and a reflection of this multi-sector movement building era that we're in. Um, and Ending Collective, we're, we're a movement-building organization, and so our work is really uh, about supporting Indigenous self-determination, building Indigenous power, and supporting decolonial work on a grassroots level. So, you know, that's, that's how we're looking at this. Um, and I want to say, too, that about the word, the S-word itself, I, I also want to say that, um, that it's it's being addressed on the federal level by an indigenous woman, I think is really, really important considering that this word is a word that reduces indigenous women to objects. Uh, I, I liked hearing the conversation around the origins of this word and that in, in some ways it's up for debate as to whether or not the word, you know, originates from the Algonquin word that means female genitalia or just woman. But 
but either way, I think it, it has been used in, in derogatory contexts, first of all. And, and um, you know, there is a real history of Indigenous women being hypersexualized, being reduced to objects. So I think it's incredibly powerful that Secretary Holland is leading this work. And I think it really indicates the, you know, what is possible when Indigenous people lead and when Indigenous women lead from that decolonial framework. Because I think the, the other reality is, is that we have, you know, whether or not it's derived from the Algonquin language family, it was distorted by settlers. It, the name, it, it's, it's probably not even the original way that, um, you know, it was intended. We, we know that. But to, to create this blanket word for Indigenous people who all have their own words for women, I know that that's not what I call myself as a Shoshone Paiute woman. That's not my word for woman. That's not what I want to call myself or my mother or my grandmothers or my sisters. We have a beautiful name in our language. And so I think for us to um, really self-determine is in this era is really, really critical. It's really important. Uh, and and uh, so not only do we have our own languages for, for women, we also have our own place names. And so the, this is also about reclamation. I think it's about self-determination. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's definitely great news. And it's also a really important discussion. I think it's important for us to continue to unpack what this really means and, and what the opportunities are, because really there's a lot of opportunities here. This is just, this is just one piece of that. And so um, at Indian Collective, we're, you know, we're really excited about this movement, this multi-sector movement from the grassroots level, you know, from, you know, youth organizers, you know, speaking up in their classrooms about things that are offensive to, you know, the elimination of, of you know, um, offensive and derogatory Indian mascots to now the el elimination of this very, very offensive word. This is this is important. It's it's a really, uh, you know, I think powerful indicator of where we're at and where we've come from because this is absolutely uh, a product of of just generations of organizing before us. And so it's exciting to see this really bear fruit to see some changes happening and, and uh, it's just going to continue. All right. And uh, who should be at, um, who should be at the table? I know uh, we were just talking a little while ago about these tasks for task force um, that are going to be formed under uh, Holland's um, mission to eradicate this word from federal names. Um, one task force is a bunch of, um, uh, you know, federal um office heads, and then the other is um, uh, community members. Um, who do you think should be at the table when it comes to renaming hundreds of these places? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there should absolutely be spiritual leaders, language speakers, because all of these places do have original names. They have original names and and I think this this time of, of decolonization really calls us up to look back into our our community and our tribal histories to find out what those place names were. Um, and I, I think there's a there's also it's it's really important to connect to grassroots organizers, people in the land back movement. I think this is a, a slice of that land back movement. 
you know, one, this is one element of, you know, reclaiming the name. But those spaces and places are also very sacred and have significance. Uh, so I think, yeah, absolutely, uh, grassroots organizers and uh, spiritual leaders and language speakers. Okay. All right, let's go to a guest we have on the line. We have David listening in Tucson, Arizona, online. Hey, David. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to share in terms of what we've been doing. I'm calling you from Tucson, Arizona, a member of the Baltimore Nation. And so uh, there in uh, Anaheim, California, Orange County, uh, we've been able to address the the mascot and changing the name with the uh, Heritage Cultural Committee, which is the umbrella under the City Council of Anaheim. And so we got the support from that committee, and then it was moved to the city council, where it took about maybe close to two, three years for the city council to finally support uh, that effort. And so, 2022 will be they will be celebrating uh, uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, the second Tuesday of every month from this point on. Mm-hmm. And for changing the name and the mascot of uh, uh, there at uh, Anaheim High School. Uh, it's been a little over two years where we've been uh, traveling back and forth. When I say because I'm in Arizona and another tribal member from Arizona, member of the uh, Gila River, so we've been uh, asked to be uh, advisors, and so we've been able to at least address it with the Anaheim School Board trustees. Now, how that works out is that the it was the teachers that put a vote to the students there at the Anaheim High School. So 41% uh, chose to do away with the mascot, but to keep the name, and the name of the high school is Colonist. And so the, and so this is where we're at right now. But uh, what just happened last month was that the trustees were, uh, uh, were able to agree to allow uh, a Native American slash indigenous uh, curriculum to be a part of the, the school curriculum. But we're still working towards the way with the, uh, the name, which is calling it. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for that, uh, David. There's a lot of momentum in schools to get uh, Native curriculum into uh, classrooms. And, um, you know, that seems to be the root of really understanding um, how these terms can be so uh, derogatory towards uh, Native people, especially Native women, when we are talking about the S word. Um, David was talking about mascots. Um uh, Sarah, uh, you know, we, we've seen a bunch of mascots, uh, native mascots disappear over the last uh, couple of years. Um, but, you know, the, there's still a lot of them out there and there's still a lot of them in uh, native communities. Does this add, you know, a lot more complexity and just another hard layer to all of this? Yeah, I think it's really a, a really awesome opportunity. I think um, while we're we're also in this era of of you know we hear this hear this buzzword, I guess you can call it in some ways like decolonization and and what does that mean? And it, it's really recognizing that the languages that we speak, the institutions that are that have shaped our lives, are not from our own original indigenous teachings, our own. 
uh, life ways, but they've they've shaped us without our without our ancestors' consent, right? That's what that's what colonization is, and and so I think this conversation about like decolonization really calls up our communities to recognize how even things like our school mascots are a product of that, and that uh, though. At one time in history, when indigenous people were so absent from education, from the textbooks, absent from media, and the only little bit of representation that we had were oftentimes Indian mascots, right? Like, the, and, and Indian mascots were are the second most popular mascot right after animals, and so that says something. And it originated out of a time when indigenous people were reduced to animals. We're in a different time, though, right? We're, we're now seeing Native representation happen in film, in media, in government. Like, things have really, really changed. And so I think it's important for us to to have some, some of these really um, courageous conversations in our, our tribal communities about, you know, how and why these these mascots originated uh, and and why it might have felt good some time ago, you know, generations ago when, when we didn't, when we really didn't have positive representations of Indigenous people to kind of see the one representation. And, and um, I think it, it, it really, I think, kind of sadly reflects just how deprived we were of, of representation that we kind of grasped for for one of the only representations, but we're not there anymore. We're, we're in an era of self-determination, of, of, of finding other spaces and ways to represent ourselves and our true cultures. You know, what, what do our local communities call warriors? Maybe we want to be called that. You know, what are our local communities, you know, what are, what are um, other opportunities for mascots to, to reclaim um, you know, some some more positive, more some a different self-determining way of of you know representing your local school. And so I think the the time is like ripe and prime for our communities to have those discussions. And I think it's really empowering. It's really exciting. And I know local youth uh, in my home community were even you know raising conversations about this. A lot of our youth are, but I think one of the challenges are sometimes. Our, our older generations who feel really connected to those mascots. And so it can be a charged conversation even in our communities. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's, it's happening and I think we really need to show up for our youth and show up for, for this moment that we're into. All right. All right. Well, that is the end of the hour. I'd like to say thank you to Sarah Sunshine Manning. You just heard from her right there. She is from the Indian Collective. We also had a Paul Spittler from the Wildlife Society, uh, Maria Givens from Tahoma Peak Solutions, and then Dr. Walter C. Fleming over at Montana State University. We are back again tomorrow for a discussion about improving statistics for pregnancy-related complications for Native women. We hope you can join us then. I'm Andy Murphy. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities.
For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Support by Roswell Park, who know tribal communities face persistent challenges in health equity, such as cancer and higher death rates. The Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center is dedicated to advancing cancer research that will lead to translatable science, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations worldwide. Are you at high risk for cancer? A no-charge online assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org assessme. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.